0: podcast. podcast. Welcome everybody to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 149. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snn And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcat message. Uh, I'd like to wish everyone listening a very happy, safe and bountiful Thanksgiving. Uh, our shows this week from the SNM Podcast Network are focused on this theme. Thinking about what we are thankful and grateful for in a year, that was, you know, putting it lightly, just it was a, a tough year. It was very difficult for so many of us out there. So, you know, I, I wanted to dedicate a week to, to giving thanks and really talking about what we're grateful for. But first, a quick reminder, the SNN Network Canada virtual event is coming up on January 6th and 7th, 2021 with lead sponsor Small Cap Discoveries, one of the leading Canadian small micro and nano cap newsletters. Uh, we have teamed up to highlight our neighbors to the North, Canada. We have our initial speakers up there right now, so be sure to check them out. Uh, many more speakers that will be announcing and presenting company lineup is filling up quickly. I'm really pumped on what we have lined up for you all, so be sure to register now on canada.snn.network to join us for an incredible microcap event to kick off 2021. Go to, again, it's canada.snn.network to register. Uh, like I said at the beginning, this week on the SNN Podcast Network, it's a Thanksgiving theme. You know, starting with In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure, our hosts chat about what they're thankful for this year as investors. Uh, check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. And on the Investors Roundtable this week, our panelists and I will be discussing what we're thankful for this year, uh, again, as as investors. Uh, and you can watch this episode on the SNN Network YouTube channel at youtube.com slash SNNWire. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Keith Beverly. He is the managing partner and CIO of Grid 202 Partners. Keith participated on a panel at our August 2020 virtual event titled, uh, and I quote here, the business case for changing the landscape of financial services, end quote. Uh, that explores how we can make financial services a more diverse and equitable ecosystem. I'm excited to share my chat with Keith because he is a pioneer in the financial community. After getting a start in finance, working at The Motley Fool, he could have easily gone in the stock picking route and direction starting a fund or asset manager. However, Keith followed his passion for closing the wealth gap in the United States and his solution for doing so was using a holistic approach through sound financial planning. Listen in as Keith describes Grid202's approach to building generational wealth with impact and discipline. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 149 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Keith Beverly. Welcome back everybody to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and uh, I thank you all for listening. And I'm really excited about our guest that we got here today. Uh, this is a gentleman that joined us on a panel that we did at our event back in August titled The Business Case for Changing the Landscape of Financial Services. This was an incredible panel, and I'm really excited that he's back to do a one-on-one interview where we might touch on a few topics that we talked about there today, but in general, just, I want to get a story. Let's learn the full thing. So with that. We got Keith Beverly. He is the managing partner and CIO at Grid Two Hundred Two Partners. Keith, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm great, Robert. How are you? Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it.
0: No, of course. And look, I got to apologize. Look, I'm, I, I haven't gotten a haircut in a couple months, and I just I had I had to I just had to do it. I had to go hat. I know that's a little too informal, but I put on a I shirt. Started. You know, that was you know. Yeah, I,
1: I, I appreciate that. I appreciate yeah. that, and um, you—you'll have to come to North Carolina and and, and uh, visit my barber. So he just hooked me up this past Thursday. I, I always go to my barber. That's my last visit before I get on the road. So I'm actually in D.C. right now. So I got to make sure I get a fresh cut before I hit the town and get on the road. Hey, man, D.C. is D.C. is the place to be right now. I'm sure. I
0: mean, it must be. Uh, why, when when did you get into D.C. just recently? Yes, yeah, it came in yesterday.
1: It's kind of yesterday, yesterday,
0: is it, is the vibe still going from from Saturday?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's it's more quiet now. So I I I missed the uh, the, the the hoopla over the weekend. So you got um, you got the haircut. And you
0: showed up. You're like, come on! I just got a Fred haircut. This is right.
1: and then it's quiet. Yeah, story of my life, though. Story of my life. Always miss the good
0: stuff. Oh man! Well. You know, I, I, I look, I know we're going to get into it. I hope that's not the main theme, but uh, you know, look, as so, so you get, so, so we get the lobster roll that doesn't have all the lobster in it, but you know, it happens, it, it happens. happens. All right, Keith, well, let's dig right in, man. I'd love to get your background and, and really, where did your passion for investing begin?
1: Yeah, my passion for investing began when I uh lost a ton of money in my first stock. So that's that's really when I was hooked. As as um yeah, nice thing. But uh, I I got a hold of one of my dad's Schwab statements when I was like in my early teens and started investing when I was in high school. So I saved up a ton of money uh, over the course of a of a summer, invested it in one stock. Stock proceeded to to fall precipitously and and like became a penny stock after I bought it. Um, I think within a year or so. And then you know after that, I decided I was gonna. You know learn about investing and be more knowledgeable and, and never make at least at least if I was going to lose money, I was going to do it in an informed way, right? I was going to be educated about my loss and at least understand like why I was losing money. Um so I, I vowed never to make a, another uninformed investment decision after that. So I, I've been you know hooked ever since. So it started I, pretty early. I,
0: I gotta ask about that story. I mean you don't have to name the name of the company, but what would you yeah. say was like the main what what enticed you and then what was the lessons learned from that
1: one? Well, it was it was more just going off of the, uh, you know, my father recommended a few stocks. He's like, you know, know, looking for something that was a tech stock that was uh, it was in the semiconductor space, and you know that was a a booming industry um, back then, and it was one of the players that that just didn't survive. Um, But you know, for for me, it was a, a great learning lesson, and you know, you save up a ton of money, invest, and then. It goes nowhere and you lose a lot of money and then you, you, know, you know, dust yourself off and, and live the fight and live to invest another day.
0: Absolutely. So I, I know talking to you off camera, uh, we discussed a little bit about your background and how you actually you you cut your teeth at, at the Motley Fool. I, I feel like I should do like a full documentary on like the Motley Fool factory of of investors and advisors that came out of there because it's pretty incredible, the lineup of people. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience there?
1: Yeah, so when I was at the Fool. Uh, worked on two. The Fool, um, I love that. Newsletters. that like anybody who works, it's the yeah. Fool. When
0: I was at the Fool, I love it.
1: All right. Okay, yeah, sorry. yeah. So two newsletters. So hidden Gym and pay dirt uh, were the newsletters I, I focused on. So in the small cap space, and actually pay dirt was more in the micro cap space. So uh, I don't know if any of your your audience would be familiar with it. Um, you know, back then, but you know, it was it was a great environment. So uh, other investors who Know, very sharp and passionate about the work and passionate about educating other investors which is really something that stuck with me and um you know it, it was when i first you know back in you know when I, when I was early in investing i first started you know learning about investing when i was in college i want to say um like my soft, sophomore year of college freshman no freshman year of college i spent a lot of time on the molly fools website so I really credit them for like laying a pretty strong foundation around investing and wanting to invest in individual stocks, you know, at that, at that age, um, but it was a great environment. Um, you know, you come, come to work every day and everyone's, you know, you know, great writers and, you know, not a pretentious environment to be in. And, you know, it was a wonderful environment, like nothing but positive things to say about, about my time there. So, I mean, the way it was structured, like we each had, you know, each and was had, probably somewhere between you know 10 to 20 names that they covered. And uh, with the full, they have very active message boards, right? So you know, if you covered a uh, covered a stock, you would write about a newsletter and then kind of monitor and, and respond to the activity that was taking place on the on the on the message board. So it was it was good. So you know from an education perspective and what they've done for just the investment um, you know the investment world. Um, and for active do yourself investors, uh, it's a great resource.
0: What, what would you say were some of the things that you took away from that experience, just in, in whether it's from just incorporating into your own investing philosophy, how you're now running grid to partners. I mean, there, there must've been tons of stuff that you're like, do, do we got time? Because I, I'm sure.
1: Right. Right. Well, I think just investing in individual stocks, right? So it's, it's somewhat a, um, uh, it's it's out of favor, right? Because there's so much emphasis on passive investing and ETFs and you, know, you can't beat the market. So I mean, the fact that you know, the fool has um, carved out a, a niche for themselves amongst people who actually invest in individual stocks was something that um, has, has been you know, with me ever since I left there and, and during my time there, it was, it was you know, great to be in that environment because you know, even back then, like the trend was, No, going more towards mutual funds, so not as much ETFs, but still, you know, why do you want to invest in individual individual stocks as opposed to owning a basket of of stocks and reducing your risk? Um, But now, when it comes to wealth building, I'm I'm still partial to uh, to individual stocks, and and probably one of the few you wealth wealth management firms that still invest in individual stocks in their in their client portfolios. So. You know the, the the trend these days is you know put everything in etfs and you know call it a day um and you know for us you know, we do utilize etfs and you know across several you know asset classes you know you're more efficient asset classes but I, I don't think is uncommon but uh you know we do also you know, like to invest in individual stocks i think you know I, I credit the fool for for some of that
0: very cool i mean uh You know, I'm sure there's some micro caps that somehow slip into a few of those. Uh, uh, Probably not, but there might be a few.
1: Yeah, not not right now.
0: (laughs) now. Fair enough. But But, but, uh, yeah, I think if,
1: if, if we have more resources, probably. Yeah, for sure. Fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Well, hey, I, I my last question I, I, on your time at the Molly phone because I have to ask. It's a microcap podcast, you know. You, uh-huh. as you said, you worked a little bit on on the microcap newsletter, a little bit. Some uh, sometimes, you know, I, I mean, what was what was some of the fun stuff that you learned about microcaps and penny stocks during that time?
1: You have to do your research, and you have to be, you have oh. to be very <laughs> diligent, right? So <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart, um, and you know, the, the interesting thing, well, I guess the uh, you know, important thing about investing in individual stocks is like knowing your risk tolerance and, um, you know, for, for some people, you just need to set aside a certain percentage and not deviate from that percentage and be uh, disciplined in it because you can, you know, come across a name that you think has, you know, a ton of upside potential and, you know, is a great, you know, greatest story ever and and um, you lose your hat on it. So you want to be, you know, just mindful that, you know, you want to if, you know, while being aggressive and taking risks, that you're still, um, you know, conscientious about the the, the risk that you're taking and doing so in a in a judicious manner. So, you know, so caveat emptor. So, you know, buyer beware. Invest and in, you know, do your thorough due diligence. But uh, you know, don't don't be afraid either. So.
0: All right. So, Keith, catch us up. All right. So from your time at The Fool to then founding Grid 202 Partners, you know, what fill in that gap for us.
1: Yeah. So after I left The Fool and went to business school and um, after I graduated, I started um, my first RIA uh, prior to starting my current RIA, uh, really with the the, the thinking uh, that there was this demographic out there that, that wasn't being served by um advisors like me so you know the cfa cfp crowd you know went to you know got the MBA and have all these letters after your name uh for the most part you know those folks are only working with the ultra high net worth who were ultra high net, ultra high net worth households and institutions right and you know for me you know i have no issues with the ultra high net worth clients we want to bring more of them into the firm great 202 partners check us out um <laughs> Keith Bev CFA, that's my, my Twitter handle, you know, slide into my DMs. I have, have no problems with that. Um, but for, for me, you know, looking at the impact I wanted to have, I knew that that wasn't going to be the only demographic I wanted to serve at my practice. Uh, so having some um, diversity in, in clients and, and having some flexibility where we can work with clients across the income and, and wealth spectrum uh, was important to me and i didn't see a way where i could do that at a big firm um and at a firm that was going to pay me market salary you know coming out of coming out of school so it just just found myself in a you know predicament where okay well if i graduate and you know i go in and make you know market salary in my field like what role would i have and who would i be working with and you know a lot of you know I, a lot of my friends and people in my network, I just wouldn't be able to serve. So it was important to me. And, you know, fortunately over the past, now almost over the past 10 years, I feel like the industry has kind of caught up to, you know, my vision, you know, nine, 10 years ago, where now you have different models of how you can work with people that aren't necessarily millionaires or multimillionaires, and you can still, you know, do well financially and, and, you know, have a comfortable, um, you no know, comfortable income doing so. Um, so it's been good to see that evolution over the past several years. And you know, I think our firm is well positioned to uh, keep moving in the right direction and to capitalize off of um, you know, what we see as a, as a very attractive you know, market to serve that, that continues to be underserved. At least when you, you know, talk about advisors that um, you know, have our types of experience and backgrounds um, that we're bringing to the table.
0: So I, I, want, I wanted to ask you about that because that education process must have been pretty tough. You know, I mean, you're talking to potential clients coming in and, you know, they, I, you know, most, most RAs, CFPs or, or advisors just in general have been serving that millionaire high net worth yep. crowd. You know, what, what were those initial conversations like with, like, I don't have that much money. Why are you talking to me? Like, what, what can you do for me right now?
1: Right, right, right. No, definitely. It's a very good, valid question. And uh, for us, it always comes down to value, right? So, you know, you're making this amount of money. You know, how do we justify our value? So you know, we kind of hang our hat. As much as I love investing and, you know, individual stocks and doing analysis and the market commentary and the research, uh, where we really hang our hats on is, is the financial planning piece and just being like that go-to resource for all of our clients when it comes to anything that, that has a dollar sign attached to it. Like, that's the way I, I you know, frame it with clients. Like, if there's a decision you're contemplating, a decision that's that's top of mind for you that has a dollar sign attached to it, you know, you should be thinking about us as a resource and you know, reaching out and, and getting our thoughts on it. And, you know, for that, for that value, um, you know there, there's a, a dollar amount that makes sense for the clients and, and for us. Um, and I think, you know, we're doing a, a, a much better job of articulating um, our value and then you know, also making sure that the, the, uh, the revenue that we're deriving from the, the client relationship you know, makes sense from a long term you know, business perspective.
0: You know, I, I had a question for for advisors that I, I don't know why it's taken me so long to even ask, because, you know, I, I speak with a lot of fund managers on here, asset managers um, that are just focused on picking stocks that kind of thing, building portfolio. Yep. You know, why for you was it important to kind of to be more on the wealth management side where you're doing not just that, but also doing the financial planning rather than just going into on the fund manager's side and picking stocks? You know, I feel like that was a pretty critical decision in your, in your thought process.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. And as much as I, I love um, you know, individual stocks and and uh, investing in individual stocks, when you look at the impact you have. so in if you're in micro caps, what's the the largest allocation that, that you would recommend or uh, anyone have to micro you know, micro cap stocks? Maybe maybe ten percent on the like for an uber aggressive investor. Would you would you recommend anything above ten percent on like?
0: I'm probably your... the worst person to ask that because <laughs> yeah. there's most of my 100%, audience is like hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> I mean,
1: like outside of outside I like of, risk <laughs> well outside of a let me qualify by saying outside of a professional you know microcap investor so you know <laughs> your, your dad who or, or mom also
0: a terrible person to ask him
1: also <laughs> loves
0: microcap <laughs> outside of the
1: craft outside of the craft, lineage, outside of the craft lineage let's move to you know the, the Jackson family like down the street right. from you you know, what, what would you say is the the, the reason, uh, you know, the max they should have in, in micro cap? So you, you know, you're probably right in that. Maybe, maybe 10%, right? Right. Yeah, I right. 10 right? So then you think about, okay, well, how much impact can you have on, you know, a, a household, um, you know, with that 10% allocation, right? And then that's just their investment portfolio. Um, you know, what happens when in that imp- investment portfolio grows and they need to pass it down to their heirs, but they, you know, having taken the right steps from a state plan perspective and they they're playing uh, a ton of money in taxes and now, you know, the government is getting a large share of a large share of that portfolio that should have passed to, you know, to heirs. Um, you know, what if you know what if there there wasn't insurance in place and you know now. Now the the you know the the surviving spouse is in a in a tough you know situation financially. Now they have to eat through the portfolio and you know literally to to survive. So I think you know when you look at the impact you can have as a as a financial planner, like the investment you know side of things is going to be. I, I think fair to say is going to be the most um, the most critical component of you know most household's overall financial plan like the investments is probably going to be like the central component of the plan um but those other areas are are extremely important as well so we talk about the impact you want to have on individual lives um you know financial planning and having like that that comprehensive approach and you know really really looking at the relationship as a holistic relationship is is made the most sense for me right because i can affect that 10% of the portfolio, but, you know, what about the other 90%, you know, on the investment side? And what about all these other areas of that, that come into play when you're, you know, going through the financial planning process? Gotcha. All
0: right. So my next question, it, it really, it, it, it kind of hark, harkens back. I think that's the right word. Harkens back to mm-hmm. um, the panel that you participated on back in August about yep. changing the land, the, the business landscape for the financial community chain. The business case for changing the landscape of financial services—that's the official title for anybody that wants to go back and check out that panel. You know, and this ties in a lot to your firm's philosophy. And you know, I just—you gave an answer on there that was really quite impactful to me when I heard about it because you really are at the forefront as somebody who has been uh, changing the landscape of financial services for a long time now. You know, so I'd love for you to kind of give us a. You know why? Why you? What inspired you to really go into business for yourself, and how Grid Two O Two has been part of this change that you've been seeing? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So we we are a uh, diverse owned firm. So uh, for everyone looking at this, I am African American, and uh, we have several African American advisors who are who are at the firm. And uh, right now, um, we just have. Uh, the, the, the latest results that the CFP board has, has published, I think it's 1.5% of um, certified financial planners are African-American. And, um, you know, there's, there's a dearth of us in the industry and it's been, you know, a passion of mine to make sure that that changes. And you know, one way that we change it is by having successful firms that can recruit other advisors of color. So I'm, I'm excited to say that one of our advisors just yesterday passed the CFP exam. So she'll be one of the few Black women in the country who's both a CFA charter holder and a certified financial planner. Um, so there, I know two other women that have two other Black women who have both those designations, um, and it's great that she's at our firm. So I think for for us. Um, there aren't a lot of firms that look like ours, uh, and especially that that have our caliber of, of professional with with the backgrounds and experiences. And we just have a very talented team, and we're you know, looking to build something special together, and you know work with households from you know all different races. But you know obviously, when uh, a household that that you know wants to give some consideration to a diverse firm um, is in the market for a diverse advisor and they go to our page and they see you know a lineup of advisors with you know impressive credentials, you know, more than likely they're gonna you know give us a shot and, and reach out and and you know, consider us in their in their selection process. Um but yeah it's been a passion of mine for you know for a very long time. So you know generational wealth is is important across you know all communities, but particularly when you look at communities of color and you know that that huge gap in wealth. Um, how do you address it? You know, one of the ways, you know, back to my my point earlier about you know, how you can maximize your impact. Um, you know, one of the ways is by, well, and I would argue the the most um, the most powerful way is through sound financial planning, right? So it's through you know making sure that people have the right allocations in their p- portfolios, making sure they have the proper insurance coverage, making sure that they're mitigating taxes as much as possible, making sure that uh, their estate plan is solid and they're um, passing down their assets to their heirs in a, in a way that's consistent with their values but also is going to be um, you know prudent and and um, and and smart from a financial planning perspective like all those areas um, when you you know look at the totality of their impact um, there's a lot that you can do there you know especially when you're talking you know with a group that predominantly hasn't had, um, the same you know level of, of exposure to financial topics and um, you know weren't having conversations around around a dinner table about micro cap stocks you know growing up so you know bringing that that education piece is is important um and it's you know it's essential right now and i'm also finding we're also finding that people really are at a place in, in, in a moment where they're yearning for knowledge right because there's so much of it, um and in some ways it's great that you know you can google something and and you know do an internet search in a few minutes and you know get up to speed on different topics but there are so many sources of of information having an expert that is knowledgeable that has your best interests at heart um and is going to help you make sense of you know all these different um, sources of information is is becoming you know very valuable right because you know, people know that they can. You know, we, we have a lot of smart clients. You know, a bunch of you know folks with um, you know impressive credentials in in their own right that are. I'm sorry about that. That are um, that are coming to us to you know delegate the the, the financial um, you know planning and, and investment management for them because you know, they could if they wanted you know do it on their own. They could read it you know, read a ton of books and. Um, you know, consume that, that knowledge, that information, but do they want to do that? Or do they want to spend more time with their kids? Or do they want to spend more time mentoring or, you know, spend more time, you know, engaging in some activity that's going to bring them, you know, joy. So, you know, they choose to, you know, delegate that responsibility to us. yeah, but we're, you know, we're fortunate to be in a position where we have clients delegate their, you know, investment management and financial planning, you know, responsibilities to us.
0: Very good. So, I mean, Keith, what what it sounds like you your firm and it seems like your firm already has a pretty strong foothold. it's a well-known firm, many clients very successful bringing on new advisors, which is amazing. but it still seems like it's really difficult because there seems like the you know there's an education gap that you're also trying to fill at the same time. so you know other than doing podcasts like these and you know blogs and all that stuff i mean what 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 are you doing from a firm perspective to continue to be able to reach out to as many different clients that are being underserved right now?
1: Yeah. So we, we, we do lots of webinars, <laughs> lots and lots of webinars. So we have a spreadsheet that we run. I haven't, I haven't looked at it, um, past few weeks. I think we've done a, a couple of past few weeks, but like we reached over 500 people, um, through webinars, probably like 600 or so right now. Um, over the course of the year so you know webinars with we did one with the city of annapolis we've done some with sororities um you know partnered with other organizations that or or other companies that have large followings and and done um webinars for for their community so you know that that financial education piece and you know webinars for us have been one of the the go-to vehicles for just disseminating knowledge. And it's been great, just engaging with folks that you know may or may not come on board as clients or may not be a good fit as clients, but just you know sharing our sharing information with them and sharing our expertise is um something that everybody on the team is is passionate about. So I'm gonna say all of us have participated in webinars and you know people have no problems reaching out and, and and finding us and and engaging us.
0: All right. So I have to ask what what's the most fun and the most difficult part of your job on a on a day to day basis, or if you got an anecdote in there, I'm sure there's an anecdote.
1: Right. The most fun part. I love our huddles. I love our uh, our, our weekly huddles as, as a team. Everybody gets on the Zoom call and um, you know just it is. So we are remote. So none of us now. So for for a period we had uh, three advisors who were all in North Carolina, but after I say once we go into 2021. We won't have any advisors. We don't have we won't have more than one advisor in any one state. So we'll have so we'll have I'm I'm in North Carolina, Camila's moving to Atlanta, Brian's in Denver, um Ken is in DC, Deborah's in LA, well San Francisco, sorry. Um Whitney's in Columbus, big, big difference. difference sorry no offense to either either side there. I'm, just, I'm
0: just messing
1: with <laughs> Whitney's in uh columbus and and jose's in boston um yeah so we're literally all over the country so you know having those having those huddles and everybody come together um has is, is been great and it's a great you know jump start to the week for us uh as far as things that i could definitely do without um Paperwork and operations. <laughs> so, <laughs> operations and systems, like that stuff, I just, and, and compliance. Like, those are like the three things where if I didn't have to do any of it, I'd be, it'd be too soon. <laughs> just, like, if I could just like not do any more paperwork for the rest of my life, I'd be, I'd be fine with that. Just, just let me sign. And you don't even need my, you know, you don't, I don't even need to sign. You can just like electronic, electronically sign for me. So, those are probably like the the biggest, biggest headaches and what I wish I could you know do without. Fair enough.
0: All right. So I want to dig in a little bit to the firm's investing strategy. Well, mm-hmm. I know this is an investing podcast, so I know I, I hammer home right. a lot of investing e type questions. So, you know, and I know this changes probably from client to client, but like let's say when a client comes to you at first and says hey keith well you know i'm not sure what my investing strategy is and or should be you know so what's what's your strategy and your criteria and then work off that so you know i'd love to know what your investing strategy and criteria is for you personally
1: yeah yeah so you know for us we so one we we do consider ourselves active investors right so and there are a lot of advisory firms that are you know strictly passive and that's it's very common these days, and you know, I I, I totally understand it. Um, but you know, back to my experience as a fool, and just you know, my background as as an investor, um, I never saw myself you know being a one hundred percent passive investor. Uh, but what it looks like with active investment, active management rather, looks like for our clients is a mix of passive and active mutual funds, and then um some select stocks so we have a portfolio 8 to 12 stocks at any given time that we invest in we call it our select equities portfolio and um you know my i consider myself a thematic investor right so you know we, we look at you know, what's going on in the, in the macro environment uh try to distill some um, dominant things we think are going to play out over over several years and then we invest in them. um you know i, I mentioned you know, passive for the most part, our our passive investments are going to be in asset classes we consider, you know, most efficient. So probably no surprise. So a large cap value or, you know, bond market, you know, kind of treasury bond market type investments are, you know, we aren't looking for active managers in those spaces. Uh, When we do look for active managers, you know, we want to see a high active share. We're comfortable with them holding you know, concentrated positions and and you know, really being true active managers and, you know, not closet indexers. Um, and they are also, like these days, doing more in the, in the alternative space as well. So looking to identify some private market opportunities for, for our clients. And, you know, what we find for for us is, um, you know, the impact piece is, is important. Um, so you know, we are you know, ESG sustainable investors, and we do believe in impact investments um but we also believe that you don't have to sacrifice returns in order to achieve impact in your portfolio uh, so what that looks like for our clients is you know understanding you know one like what, what's your return objective right so um you know your, your return objective is seven you know, percent like you no know, long-term seven percent are we going to get you to seven percent or greater ideally greater and do so in a way that's aligned with your values do so in a way that is going to incorporate, um, you know, social causes and issues that are important to you um, and have that be reflected in your portfolio. So like, that's what it looks like as a, you know, for great clients to, you know, to you know, build a, for us to build a, a portfolio for a great client. So, you know, understanding what the return objective is, understanding risk tolerance and then layering on uh, their, you know, impact objectives and what they want to achieve in that realm
0: very good that actually ties into my next question quite a bit because uh well this is one of the questions i had earlier but we you know we we got on tangents so we went we went on the tangents yeah um yeah. you know you know, it happens here. Um, so, you know, as as it states on the firm's website, right then and there, your philosophy is generating returns with impact and discipline. You spoke to the fact that, you know, you're looking at developing impact in ESG portfolios, depending on what the your client's risk tolerance is, you know, and then you actually had a have a blog post as well on the website uh, titled Four Things the New York Times Gets Wrong About Impact Investing. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, what impact investing and ESG investing really means to you. And then also, uh, you know, what, what does the general public get wrong about impact and ESG investing?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one, and I think I, I can't say this enough, like, I don't, I'm a pretty competitive guy, Bobby. And like, I think that's one of the reasons why like the, the markets tend to attract competitive people, right? Cause like either, sure. either you, either you beat sure. the market or you didn't. And it's, it's just, it, right there very clear as to you know what your scorecard is on any you know given day or any given period um so for me i i, I don't know if i'll ever um i don't know if i'll ever embrace the notion of you know just kind of achieving a market rate return right so i want to i want to do better than whatever the benchmark is and i think that's always going to be the case um so for us one of the biggest you know, misnomers that, that we address with, with our clients is that, you know, so we want to achieve, in, in achieve great returns for our clients, um, but also make sure that the, the, the impact um, is going to be reflecting their portfolios and we're investing in a way that's going to be consistent with their, you know, their values and, and beliefs. Um, and it looks different for, you know, for, for different investors. And I think, you know, when you look at where the industry is going, at least where I see the industry going over next, 10 to 20 years. Um, so, so firms that are able to like more customize their, um, their experiences for their clients and really build custom portfolios are going to be the firms that clients will, will gravitate to. And, um, you know, I think the impact um, piece and, and the responsible investing piece is a is, uh, is going to be central to that you No, know, moving forward.
0: So as you mentioned, you're a competitive guy. You want to beat what the normal market returns are, yep. you know. And I think the biggest myth that people have out there when it comes to impact in ESG investing is that you can't beat that if you just have an impact in the ESG portfolio. So you know, the the main point of your blog post that I, I that I took away from it is like, well, you actually can, you know, if 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 you follow a certain formula and you and You know, not necessarily following exactly what Keith Keith Beverly and Grid Two Hundred Two is doing, but just in general, you still can. So, you know, from your perspective, how how is it possible to still generate great market returns while thinking about how I I can just in line with your values more or less? Because that's really what impact investing is.
1: Right, right. And if you want to, so if if you're a, a proponent of of clean air, right, do you think that? companies that are going to help bring about a more uh, cleaner environment they're going to improve the environment overall are going to do better or worse than companies that are harming the environment i think long term companies that are you know being more productive and more responsible when it comes to you know their impact on um on the environment will do better right so that's that that's an investment theme, right? So that's a that's an ESG theme. And that's an ESG theme that I would expect would would outperform um, you know, over time. Right. So, so one of the things that we're focused on right now is figuring out how we can make racial equity an investment theme, an investable theme. Right. So right now, if you said you want to invest in companies that are at the forefront when it comes to to racial equity, there's not an easy way for you to Um, implement that strategy in public equity markets right now, right? So that's one of the things that we're uh, figuring out and and building some strategies around as to, you know, how can we, looking at public equities, use racial equity as an investment theme, right? So over the next 10 years, companies that have a more diverse workforce, that treat their employees of color better, that are able to tap into diverse markets, will they outperform or underperform the companies that are lagging in that space you know my thesis would be that they would outperform right so but how do you then build a portfolio how do you then invest in those particular companies um so you know the way we think about esg is um you know what, what are some enduring themes that from a investor's perspective that you know should yield outsized returns um over you know long period. So next 10, 20 years, and then how you position portfolios, how do you invest in um, those securities that are going to participate in that growth and in that theme?
0: You know, it's interesting. We were uh, a, a theme that we talked about on, a, I have another podcast show called the investors round table. Once a week, we talk about a, you know, a topic and mm-hmm. kind of just shoot the shit on all sorts of different things you know but yeah. one thing that we talked about now a couple times because this is very pertinent especially in micro caps when you're analyzing every little bit because it's such a yep. risk is talking about cultural moats you know mm-hmm. and i think when it comes to look trying to put together a racial equity strategy i think there's a lot to rather than even focusing on you know individual uh, sectors which is definitely important as well but I think even ahead of that might be trying to understand, well, how do you quantify what a cultural moat might be? Because I think a lot of the things that you're saying would then result in greater productivity and just an overall better company. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, I do agree. I do agree. And um, so uh, I'll I'll give you some insight into as to our methodology and how we're approaching it. So what we're doing is um, you talk about culture. So uh, another way that I would uh, frame it would be belonging. Right, so we're like, do you feel as though you belong at this particular, you know, company? And um, you know, we're working with a company that has survey data from millions of employees across, you know, across the country, uh, covering over 150,000 companies. And you know, right now, we're looking at s p P 500 companies and looking at how employees at those companies rate that company. Right, so and looking at those um, looking at employees by gender and also um, you know by race. So if we see a connection that, if we see that um, a company has on to scale of one to five of company is a one, right? And they're in the technology space. Uh, so let's say it's an IT firm, let's say, say you're looking at in, in the IT sector and you have a company that has a one and a company that has a five, right? our thesis would be that the company that has that's rated a five by their employees would outperform the company that has a, a one. Um, and when you layer on, you know, race and uh, looking at employees of color at those companies, you know, the same thesis will hold. Um, so that's how we're approaching like that. Um, carving out the, the racial equity piece um, as an investable theme for, you know, for our clients. So that, that's like the, the core of the strategy in, like a, in a quick, um, 30 second description.
0: Yeah. I have a feeling we could do a whole nother show just on no the whole, can. the whole, the whole strategy itself. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, if there's anything else you'd like to to say about the strategy, you know, before I go on to the next question, is there anything else you want people to know about yeah. how you're trying to make that strategy work? Yeah.
1: But I, I think, well, when you look at microcaps, caps, just, you know, to your point about risk, um, you know, if, if you're, it, it would definitely be, if, if I'm, if I'm examining a, a micro cap company, and I see that they are uh, rated low on that on that scale. From you know, their company, their, their employees of color. From their their women employees, um, to me, that would definitely factor into the the due diligence process and whether or not you decide to put dollars behind that company. Because um, if they are a poor performer in that area, to me, that suggests that there are some some cultural issues that. That would uh, probably not bode well for them long term, right? So if you're having problems retaining, let's say you're having problems retaining women, women that your company just aren't happy, and you're an apparel company, right? What does that say about your prospects for <laughs> for apparel when you, know, you want to tap into um, you know the, uh, the 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 female market and you know the trillions of dollars that they command and spending annually and you know, you have a, um, you know, you you have a class action discrimination, you know, lawsuit that's, that's, you know, that can happen at any moment,
0: right? I feel like like we're thinking of the same company, like right now (laughs) that we're just not saying, but it's like right here. But yeah, no, I I, I resent.
1: Right. So I mean, but those types of, you know, risk factors, like they have to, if they aren't playing into your, your calculus as an investor, then, you know, you probably have a, a flawed process for how you're analyzing companies.
0: Well, here's another question I have because this is something that bothers me a lot. As as you know, when when you're just talking in general about you know wanting to look at companies that or or you know matching that score of having a uh, you know having a diverse employee set, right? You mm-hmm. know, having a lot of different you know women, people of color, you know, uh, just every, across the board, right. you know. Yeah. And like, what do you what do you say to people that say? Oh, what they need to have a, a quota or this and that because I think that's just the biggest misnomer about this whole point.
1: I lost you at like biggest, so it was very appropriate. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like, the biggest, like, <laughs> I was like, like big, the biggest, the biggest
0: misnomer. In, okay. in this in entire this entire argument of you know I mean it almost goes back to like the idea of affirmative action which you know it, it, this idea of like filling quotas and stuff like that where at the end of the, at the end of the day and I think you, I, I think I saw it though that either you had data or, or, or somebody else did that when you have a more diverse and really just happy workforce you know that actually shows that those companies tend to succeed more often than not you know this isn't just like we're just trying to fill that. You know, what do you say to people that like just it's still not cutting through, you know, that that idea? It's so annoying. I'm sorry. I don't even mean to ask, but it's just so oh, annoying.
1: Doesn't oh. I mean look, invest how you see fit. And I think you're going to lose money. Yeah. Like, that, like that's, that's the way I would approach it. Like, OK, if you think that if you think that company that has um, these these glaring potential red flags when it comes to how they're working with or how they're addressing, you know, communities of color, how they're dealing with women, how they're dealing with the LGBTQ community. If you think that they can get away with it and their stock perform and outperform the companies that are doing an exceptional job or are really at the forefront on those, on those issues or dealing with those, uh, those communities, then put your money behind it. That that's, that, that's how I would address that. I don't, I wouldn't, um, I think at this point, if you have like at this point, there have been so many studies and um, empirical research that support the the um, the notion that you know, more diverse firms, um, when you look at gender, when you look at you know race, are going to outperform those that are, are less diverse. Like like the case has been made, um, yep. and if you, know, you case, if you don't believe in the case and you don't believe in the empirical data, then um you no know, put your money behind it and let's see how your portfolio performs compared to, you know, compared to ours. That's right. Let's compete. Let's go. Again, I think you're right. I think you're right. Back to the market force. Back to, you know, being a competitor. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> put your money up. I mean, let's, let's see how you do. I love it.
0: All right, so we're at that point in the interview where this is my favorite question to ask every guest that I have on here. So what what would you say is an investing experience other than maybe the very first one where you lost all your dough? You know, what, what was an investing experience that you would say impacted you the most in your career?
1: Yeah, so I I, I lived through and invested through the the uh, the financial crisis, right? So, yep. for and, and I was at the Fool then, right? So I was at the Fool when... You no know, markets tanked and um it was funny. I was just like before this interview. I um this is a funny story actually. So this was in March. So March 2009 like and there was one of the up days for the market. It was like right when we had like nobody knew that we were we had you know, come pretty close to the the nader at that point. Um but I had like I, I wrote something to our subscribers and said like it, it was a the markets are probably up like several percent. I said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheer this market on, I'm gonna do my part and I'm not gonna change my underwear until the market, you know, goes down again. Like this is uh, an article, I'll I'll share the link with
0: you. Yes, please.
1: But, you know, for me having that, uh, like that mentality of, You know, just like the, the classic Buffett stuff, right? So, you know, everyone's being fearful, be greedy, and and like when things look the most dire, that's the time to be aggressive. Like, it's one thing to talk about it; it's another thing to be in a cubicle with people buying um, buying uh, what do you call it the um, the leverage the leverage financials ETF literally in, in in 2009 so i mean i was like investing but i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't investing in leverage in leverage financials i wasn't investing in 3x finance sector in 2009 uh, but some people were some people like in our circle like okay all right we're like, all right okay i'm gonna get in i'm gonna you know i'm gonna not sell and, and not you know do anything crazy stay invested but you know, that level of risk, but you no, know, it worked out well for him. Right. So having like that type of temperament, that type of discipline to really, um, you know, be aggressive and, and put your, your money, your dollars behind, um, you know, what you're, and it's also different when you're communicating to people on a, on a very regular basis, like your thoughts and, you know, how and your strategies and what you're seeing in the, in the market. Um, but then putting your, you know, your dollars behind it. So, you know, I say, you know, work, working and investing through that and then communicating with subscribers and you, know, you have positions that you've studied and companies that you feel good about that you see, you know, down, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent um, or more. A, a lot of the, the pay dirt stocks um, were down a lot more than that. So you launched launched a it was the early days of a distressed um a d- distress special situations microcap newsletter like in 2008 so you talk about like the worst timing ever um you know for you know for a service but you know working through that living through that um you know having to explain and and um you know just communicate to people that, that were invested in and in things that you had recommended to them is just it's very humbling um it just puts you in a in a different, gives you a different appreciation for you know, your role as an advisor and for someone who's you know, managing someone else's money. And even though directly at that time, you know, the fool wasn't managing um, money, I mean, you're still um, you know, in, in a, in a quasi fiduciary role, in my opinion, you know, you know, as, a, as a newsletter service that you're you know, recommending people invest in particular companies. Oh, absolutely.
0: All right. So we're, we're there, you know, I, I'd love to close out this interview with uh, your advice for new investors out there, or actually maybe there's people listening to this that, you know, are looking for a potential advisor or, yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or, financial planner, you know, uh, what, right. what are some things, what, what's your advice to that group?
1: Yeah. I'd say my advice would be you know, learn from the masters. So, you know, do your reading and do your um, you know, research on, no different investors, all types of investment themes out there, like there's no right answer. Um, so there's no perfect way to invest. There's no perfect investor that's out there. Um, so I'd say learn from you know, the great, so to speak, but also put your own um, personality on your portfolio and your you know, investment thesis. And this is for the active investors. I mean, the do-it-yourself is probably not even looking at I me. Mean, the, the, the passive folks probably aren't you know, watching your, your, uh, your podcast. I don't know if that's your crowd. But for the active investors, you know, learn from the the, the the best, but, you know, put your own spin on it would be my advice. Very cool.
0: All right. Well, with that, Keith, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know about you and uh, Grid202 Partners?
1: Grid202Partners.com is our website. I'm on Twitter. So Keith, Bev, CFA, very easy to find on LinkedIn as well. I think my LinkedIn is just LinkedIn. com backslash keith beverly cfa cfp i want to say um but very easy to find just google keith beverly cfp and you'll 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 find me uh and um the email is keith at grid 202partners.com
0: perfect all right well keith thank you so much for doing this i really do appreciate it good luck stay safe and uh i look forward to our next chat
1: yeah definitely this was fun thanks for having me bob
0: thank you keith podcast. podcast.